Welcome to IS's Corporate Solutions, ESG Unlocked, a podcast that features engaging and insightful discussions with ESG experts around the world. I am your host, Pamela Mutomwa. The topic for this episode is about cybersecurity risk. We have the privilege of hearing from two experts on this specific topic, Ori Eisen and Doug Clare. Ori is the founder and CEO of Trusona, which is a passkey as a service platform. Prior to founding Trusona, Ori founded 41st Parameter. 41st Parameter was acquired by Experian in 2013. And prior to 41st Parameter, Ori served as the worldwide fraud director for American Express. Prior to American Express, Ori was the director of fraud prevention for VeriSign Network Solutions. In his free time, he volunteers with Thorn, the digital defenders of children. He is a founding member of Security Canyon, Arizona's cybersecurity coalition. Our other guest, Doug, leads cyber strategy for ISS Corporate Solutions, providing product management leadership and customer advisory expertise for users of the company's cyber risk solutions. Prior to joining ICS, Doug spent more than 30 years with FICO, leading product management teams responsible for the delivery, operation, and servicing of enterprise software for risk management. Doug has deep experience in helping banks, insurance companies, retailers, and other businesses. Our topic for this episode will explore some of the challenges chief information security officers, also known as CISOs, face in managing cybersecurity risks, SEC recommendations and their potential impact, how cyber threats have evolved, how to effectively look at third-party risk management, how to look at accountability within an organization, and the ongoing challenge with the shortage of cybersecurity risk professionals today. Doug and Ori, welcome to ESG Unlocked. Good to be here. Thank you. Thank, thank you for having me. Awesome. I'd like to kick off this discussion by highlighting a few observations from some of my recent reading. From my observation, some of the threats and trends, you know, they include things like vulnerability in the cloud, data breaches, risky hybrid remote work environments, electronic medical records are considered to be at risk nowadays. So I'd like to know, what do you see as the biggest threat to corporate cybersecurity today? Ori, let's start with you. I'll start by uh, simplifying. If you have any machine, any server that is connected to the network, it has risk, implicit risk. Mm -hmm. So if you think about Extending that to the enterprise view, so much data is exchanged today within the company, with partners, with salespeople, with customers, and all of that is susceptible to security issues like malware and breaches and just tapping into networks. So when you zoom out and you think about where should I worry, it's everywhere. And yet at the same time, if you worry about this issue everywhere you're worrying about it nowhere in specific and that's another thing that people kind of think that is good for them but it's not but unfortunately 2023 if you're sitting at the board meeting and you're hearing about how the company is doing underneath all of that is data and security issues that are kind of intertwined mm -hmm. and one thing I would uh, start by suggesting for people to think about is how do you separate everything you own, like all the data into what are my crown jewels? 
because if you protect everything and worry about everything in the same way, that means everything is important and yet nothing is important at the same time. That makes sense. Doug, what about your your perspective? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I would add that I think it's important for organizations to think about this as a, you know, largely a, a human problem. You know, we can we could all install some software that has some inherent vulnerability in it that we don't know about. And it's a tough thing to to counteract until you find out about it. But a lot of today's threats are really about the failings of individual human beings, right? And their level of education, their level of awareness, and their level of diligence. Things like phishing and social engineering attacks rely on the diligence and the education level of individuals. And I think it's important to always frame cyber risks in the context of the people in an organization and, um, and really addressing their skill level, their knowledge level, their diligence as really primary factors in securing the organization. People are the front lines, really. They are. When we look at, let's say, the last five to 10 years, are there any patterns that you notice when it comes to how threats have evolved? If you look at the Verizon security report, very clearly over 80% of what we see is a result of credentials being stolen and breached. And when we say credentials, I think everybody who hears this knows what we're talking about. It's mainly passwords. If you want to look back into how did we get here, I'll give you the example of the frog that is put into hot water and every time you only raise the water by one degree, so it never puts it into shock and the frog stays in the water. Mm -hmm. 60, 70 years ago, you know, with computing just started gaining momentum, uh, people use passwords just to protect some machines that were in universities, right? And then layer after layer after layer, almost like a pearl, right? When we got to the 80s and early 90s, we just kept using the same mechanisms. And no one thought that their bank account is going to be connected to it. No one thought that their electronic medical records will be connected to it. And yet now it's so prevalent and free mm -hmm. that we protect almost everything with username and passwords. And back to what Doug was saying, if I'm requiring my users to pick longer, more complex passwords and the humans are becoming the security experts, let me tell you something. My mom is not part of that group of security experts. And yet mm -hmm. we're asking her to actively engage in something that she doesn't care about and doesn't want to do. So clearly she will put something that she can remember as opposed to something that is safe. I think that is the biggest thing we see as a trend that is causing the news headlines we see every day. And I can see the increased vulnerability there. Uh, personally, for me, you know, you have, I don't know how many logins I have between apps. I mean, everything's an app, really. Doug, what are your thoughts on this? Well, I think one thing that is important right now to keep in mind, and I think this remains true, even though we're all, you know, many of us at least are now going back to the office after having been remote workers for a number of years. The pandemic forced companies to enable remote work. If it was an exception before, it's a rule now. And even with people going back in the office, that enablement of remote work has kind of changed the security dynamic for companies, I think, across the board. They now have you know, new systems that they have to secure. They have new access points that they have to secure. They have users that they have to train uh, appropriately in terms of how 
remote work should be done, how it should be secured. They're having to, you know, their, their company's assets are being accessed through home Wi-Fi, which the company doesn't control. And it's a very different world. And I think that's an important thing for, for organizations to remember. Absolutely. I like to get a little bit deeper with a specific threat. So I observed that a large percentage of breach events are the result of third-party connections. However, when people think about third parties, they tend to think of vendors specifically, right? What other types of third-party relationships should be taken into consideration when we look at the big picture? We take a step back, bird's eye view of an organization or enterprise, right? There's a lot going on there. What other, you know, relationships should people be considering? Yeah, I want to take your example of a vendor and just uh, dig deeper there to show how third-party risk is really more than what meets the eye. Let me give you an example. Say that you're a large corporation in the electronics business, and you just filed for a patent on a new whiz-bang technology that you really want to keep a secret. You have to go through some patent lawyer firm, right, in order to do the drafts for you and the applications. However, you might not realize, again, uh, talking about what Doug said before with COVID, that the very lawyers that the firm uses or even subcontracts to are sitting now at a Starbucks doing their work. Mm -hmm. The the shell of a building with glass where everybody sits is kind of a thing that might not happen today. And if that person plugs into a Wi-Fi network that is not secure, that is your third-party risk in the form of somebody sitting at a coffee shop Mm -hmm. doing their work for you. It's just that you don't see it, you don't control it, you don't know about it. And then your top secrets that you thought you were holding and protecting are really moving around the world in ways that it's very hard to control. So I'd say third-party risk introduces fourth-party risk all of a sudden because how the world looks like today. And we should pause here because how many CISOs are thinking about this and doing something about it when you don't even know that it's happening? Yeah, that's a good point. I'd like to explore this topic a little bit more. The third-party risk management, also known as TPRM for our listeners, has evolved. You look at governance, you look at risk, and you look at compliance. They're all interrelated when it comes to this issue. So how can companies effectively manage it when, when you see all of these different groups involved who, who have a stake? I think there's a couple of things here to, to keep in mind. And one is that it's pretty hard to tackle it all at once. So as companies, you know, if they're, if they're just starting to think about third-party risk management, it's probably important for them to prioritize things a bit and, and look through those third parties with whom they have relationships and prioritize a bit. Which of the ones are really handling a lot of your data? And what is the sensitivity of that data? How big is the relationship with that organization? And how important is that relationship to you in terms of business continuity? If that uh, supplier were to disappear tomorrow or have to be shut off or disconnected, would it kill the business or would you could you live without them? And I think that when companies really start to tackle third-party risk, and many have, and they're, they're doing well, others are just starting. I think if there's a really wide variety here of level of maturity from a third-party risk management standpoint. But when you first get started, I think it's important to recognize you're not going to be able to boil the ocean. You have to start at the top. So categorize those suppliers. 
look at the common sense things. How big are, how big is the relationship? How important is the relationship? How much sensitive data of, of yours do they share? And start with those, tackle those first and then work, work down the list. The other thing I would add that I think is really important here because I think it is sometimes missed is third parties can be organizations other than, than vendors, other than suppliers. They can actually be customers. If your systems are connected to them, then they are a third party to you that could pose a security threat to you if your systems are integrated, connected, and if you're sharing data. So it's not just suppliers. It's not just the supply chain. I think you got to look at it as the whole value chain of your business from your inputs all the way through to your outputs and the partners that help you deliver them in between. All of those are third parties that can present a security risk. And I think all of them need to be under that umbrella of, of third-party risk management and, and good governance. Yep, that sounds like a lot of work when it comes to understanding all of points of vulnerability. But I think something you mentioned there is prioritizing. I think first you have to obviously do the analysis to see who, who has the business continuity you know, relationship and then prioritizing from there. That's really a great takeaway. What about cyber physical attacks? such as electrical grids and water treatment systems. I'd like to kind of talk about just the general population, you know, step outside the corporate space for a little bit. Sure. A few years ago in the news, it was reported that the nation state that shall remain nameless, you can go look it up, uh, was tinkering with the water valves in a dam in the state of New York. Let me repeat. Wow. An adversary is tinkering with the knob of a dam that uh, could flood a city. That sounds very scary. And it's all connected to the internet. So if you don't take a step back and really think, in addition to wanting business to move faster and global and flatten the earth and all those things, you know, the world is a village and you want your product to be everywhere. That's the good news when it comes to a network that is everywhere. Mm -hmm. At the same time, the bad guys are also at your doorstep everywhere. So I'll, I'll repeat the crown jewel example because I do think it's a good North Star for risk people and board uh, uh, to ask questions like, what can't we live without? Just like Doug said, like, which vendor could you replace or cut and you will not uh, miss a beat? Think about the data. Think about the things that are really important to you and put three moats around them, not one. As opposed to thinking there's one moat and you're either in or out. That's like so... 70s thinking in that state of mind, you have to really think about continuous risk management and really looking at what is connected to what. I would highly suggest thinking about vendors that would help you map who is all connected to because in your head, you simply can't make those connections today. Mm -hmm. I'll give you a, a simple example. The marketing team at any organization today is putting tags that flow into Google, flow into other marketing companies, and you have no idea that the data literally from your website is copied or going to be analyzed elsewhere, falling into the wrong hands, that could be disastrous. Absolutely. So map, know what is the crown jewels, and then devise a strategy. Otherwise, we all fall into this habit of protect everything, but that clearly is not a great strategy. Yeah. Doug, what are your thoughts on this? I think one other example I'd like to maybe explore and have you have a shot at, you know, sharing your thoughts on it is the healthcare industry. What are your observations there? Because 
it's really scary to know that even the healthcare industry, hospitals are at risk. You know, people are sick on life support in some situations. What are the risks that you see there? Any observations that you can share with us? Yeah, I, I have some thoughts there, and I actually have a little bit of personal experience there as well. Like Ori, I will leave the names out. The healthcare system that I access, my family uses, suffered a breach event a couple of years ago now, and it really created a lot of havoc in the system. I think as you know, time has gone on, we're obviously very dependent on computer systems. And when they're, when they're breached or they go out or they're out of commission, everything grinds to a halt. And my daughter had some scheduled surgery that, uh, that it got canceled. They couldn't support it. Um, they didn't have her medical records accessible in order to support the surgeon who was doing the surgery and they had to cancel her surgery. Now, fortunately, it was not something that was urgent and everybody's fine. I'm sure if it was really urgent, they would have found a way to figure it out. But these kind of things do impact people's health. I think that as, as the cyber threat, as you, as you were asking earlier, right, physical threat, when we have compromises to important systems like the healthcare system or the power grid, or even things like your connected car, right, all of our vehicles are connected to the internet nowadays, you start to get into situations where compromises not just can cause us to lose data or lose some money or be inconvenienced, but they start to pose a threat to our health. They can be equated with a kinetic threat to our physical well being. And that's just really, I think, a little bit scary to think about, but something that as risk management professionals, we have to think about and we have to take, uh, we have to take action to, to minimize the impact of those um, inevitable situations. Absolutely. Well, good to know your daughter's fine and that worked out well, but that, that's really a great example of how personal things like this can just, they're unpredictable, right? It's not like you can yeah. plan for something like this, but like you said, uh, both of you communicate as prioritizing, seeing where where the biggest impact is and trying to see how you can navigate that, that risk. So I'd like to pivot into sharing more insight with our listeners on the governance aspect of a company when it comes to these challenges. I know we talked a little bit about that a few minutes ago, and I understand that the CISO serves as a quarterback for cybersecurity for most organizations, but tackling a problem as complex as cybersecurity as we've been exploring here really understanding what companies need to do to develop the right kind of collaboration inside and outside the enterprise seems to be very important from what you have both shared. So Doug, who would you say is accountable? I think that it really has to start at the top. There has to be an expectation set amongst leadership all the way up to the board level that it really is everyone's job. So there's a leadership accountability there to set the tone and to ensure that understanding. But at the end of the day, everyone has to work on this as a team. As I stated at the beginning here, the human factor is really important. Any of us in an organization or in our personal lives, we can be the point of compromise. We can make a mistake. We can, we can provide somebody information that they shouldn't have that allow them to access systems that they shouldn't have access to. I think it's important that leadership set the tone, but that a big part of that becomes that everybody knows their role. Everybody knows how they can help, what they need to do, 
what their role is in securing the assets of the organization so that that accountability can be shared. Because the minute that somebody isn't sharing it, that somebody isn't doing their part, doesn't understand what their part is, that's when bad things happen. I see that you're forecasting that effective risk management is is really going to be a shared role here in terms of accountability. Any person who is working in an enterprise should have some clear understanding of their role and how they could play their part. Yes, I agree. So the SEC has put forward some new rules for cyber disclosures and board level oversight. What impact do you think it will have? Ori, what are your thoughts there? I have a a bit of a long-winded answer, and I'll try to summarize it to all of my brethren who are CISOs who are listening to this. I want to speak for you and say something that is uh, important to say, I think. Let's hear it. People in security are aware of the zero-day threat. Have you heard that term before, Pamela? No, These are threats I have that, not. Yeah, it's called zero-day uh, malware or threats, which means today's day, we've never seen this before. So it's an attack mm-hmm. that no one has seen. So no antivirus can detect it because it wasn't in the library of things that we know about. CISOs are paid to detect and protect from things they haven't seen yet. Let me repeat. They are paid to defend us as an enterprise from something that they have not seen yet. Try to do that job. That's very challenging, very difficult. And being accountable for something like that is exactly definitely... So when we talk about board, the board needs to understand that there is no perfect CISO. It's not like you have like this, you know, ultimate fighter and they will protect me. They can protect you from what they know and they can do an amazing job, but they will do their best to protect you from the thing that they have never seen or we haven't seen as an industry. So for that reason, having cyber risk ratings and kind of scorecard of where we stand, what's our current status and where we need to spend money is the first thing to do. Because otherwise, again, you're trying to protect everything and that's a losing battle. I'll give you one more example there. Unfortunately for the risk leaders, when they ask for budget, it is being prioritized in any organization against the marketing efforts, the sales efforts, the new building, right? Because it's a corporate expense. However, we all know that when there's a breach, all of a sudden they get a blank check. Just tell me what I need to do. (laughs) If we listen to this podcast and we just change one thing, it would be to stop playing the game as if the CISO is asking for improvements because it's a nice to have. They're here trying to do their best, given the fact that they're protecting you from the unknown. And we have to tilt the budget towards that because otherwise we'll just be repeatedly in a cat and mouse game of you know, closing the doors after the horse is out of the barn. That's a very insightful perspective there. It it really humanizes the role of the CISO as well in understanding how how challenging it is, but also how much support they actually really do need in reality to actually do their jobs effectively. Doug, what are your thoughts here? No, I think Ori is on to the right the right thread here, right? It, it has a lot to do with how corporations allocate budget against these risks. And I think that while I can't you know reach into the minds of uh, all the people on the SEC who've put forward these new guidelines, I will say that I think the effect is going to be exactly in that area where having more more board members who are security literate, 
and mm-hmm. who understand the problem and who have some background and know that they have been tapped as one of the, the board members who knows something about security, it's going to force a different kind of conversation in those meetings. And I think it's really about understanding how the company's allocating resources and making sure appropriate allocations are being made. And I think board members that, like you said, are literate would support investing in this area, making more sustainable long-term value-adding decisions there. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to recognize, right, that as, as human beings, we tend to we tend to focus on what we know. And when we focus on what we know, we invest in what we know. Mm-hmm. And if we don't know cyber, we're probably going to invest in something else, right? 100%. And so um, by, by ensuring that there are cyber literate, cyber experienced board members, it's just, it's going to help raise the tide for the whole mm-hmm. effort. Absolutely. So you mentioned that, and something that came to mind is I've noticed that there's a shortage of cybersecurity professionals, and it's something I've observed over the years. Companies will mention referral bonuses that are significantly high just for cybersecurity professionals. Is there a change in this trend lately? Are you seeing the light there when it comes to professionals who can support the industry's growth and success? I don't have good news there. Would you still like to hear it? <laughs> let's, let's hear the honest, the honest situation that we are in here. The latest report shows that we're 500,000 jobs short of what we need. Oh, wow. And if you look at the rate in which universities graduate students in this realm, we're nowhere near filling the need. That's just the reality. Let me add the second layer. Again, I'm trying to speak for the CISOs who are doing this for a living. Mm -hmm. The trends there are not good either. When you look at the average tenure of a CISO today, it's 18 months. 18 months? One, eight, 18 months. And uh, again, go read. I don't want to say anything uh, that is out of uh, the lane of this podcast, but uh, many of them are getting into just personal bad situations of can't handling the pressure of what you're asking me to do, Mm -hmm. what is the impact of failure and the budget you've given me. And unfortunately, again, unless the board level discussion changes to what is cyber risk, what is ESG, how are we measuring it? How do we know we've improved? Yeah, We are going to be in this constant cycle of a revolving door where the CISO gets kind of pinned with all the blame and the budget to fix things happens only after somebody else shows up. And then again, we go back to BAU, right? I worry that we've seen this movie before and the corporate governance need to change before we see real change in security. It's a matter of priority and budget. Well, with that 18 month fact, something definitely needs to change. Mm-hmm. Doug, when it comes to the trends for the shortage in um, professionals here, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it, this this also, not to make this a podcast where I just repeat myself, but I'll go back to something I said at the beginning one more time, which is, I think it it makes it even more important that we engage and involve everybody in the organization. It can't be a one-man show mm-hmm. or one-woman show making this work for an organization. While it is important to have a leader and a quarterback involved in this, it's really important that everybody knows their part and everybody has a role to play. Breaches happen because people make mistakes. There are things that are inherent flaws embedded in some software somewhere, which I guess is somebody's mistake down the line somewhere. But within your organization, breaches happen because people make mistakes. 
and having ensuring that people understand their role, understand what good security looks like for their role in the organization is, I think, really important and a good way to share the problem and not leave all of it on one person's shoulders. Yeah. I mean, if I could summarize this whole conversation as teamwork makes the dream work, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> honestly, I, I feel like that's that's the biggest takeaway here. It, it's, it's, it's for everyone, for us to, to have a safer world. One last thing I think would be great is recommendations, right? To move forward that board members could utilize. What are your suggestions? If you don't mind, I'll start. I'll use the car industry as an example, as an analogy to where we are in the security industry. In the early days, everybody made cars and car companies would say, well, my car is better and my car is better and my car is faster and my car is faster. But there was no common language to compare two cars. Mm -hmm. Until the industry realized, you know what, we better come up with things like miles per gallon and zero to 60 in so many seconds. And now every car in the world could be measured. And it's not about what you say. It's about what you measured and what your KPIs are. Yeah. I think in TPRM, the same thing has to happen where we have common ways to compare one org to another and also to benchmark and see how you're doing compared to your brethren. Because otherwise, it's going to be a wild goose chase as to what to improve and not knowing that you did improve. Key question for every company. So if you're in healthcare, is like, what do you bubble up to the board level, almost like gauges to see how you're doing? So I'll just give you an idea of what I use with my team. It's how many pings did we get to our systems, whether they're good from customers that we expect and DDoS. And immediately you can see, are we a target? Are we not a target? Just on the highest level of uh, you know, network traffic. Mm -hmm. The other ones is how many incidents did we have? So you can clearly see a trend. If you don't measure it, you can't fix it. You've heard that yep. before. It's mm -hmm. the same thing. We need to bring the corporate view to the risk and to do peer benchmarking to see how are we doing in order to give this the right place in the conversation. And I'll say yeah. it again, the right budget and uh, focus Otherwise, we'll be, you know, doing whatever we have been doing. And I don't know that that will give the good guys a fair chance in fighting the bad guys. That makes complete sense. I think having data that actually can support these conversations or else people will feel like they're just being lectured. Right. They um, have opinions and not data. Yeah, exactly. The data will help people make decisions and support those decisions. Makes sense. Thank you both, Doug and Ori, for joining this, this platform. I appreciate both your time. Thank you for having Thank us. You. Thank you. This was ESG Unlocked, brought to you by ISS Corporate Solutions. And as your host, I appreciate you listening in and encourage you to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues, as our mission is to help you better understand the ESG landscape. And please subscribe to get an alert for new episodes and follow ISS Corporate Solutions on LinkedIn for webinars and insightful thought leadership pieces as we continue to explore and unlock the value of ESG.